Kelly, did you ever have those computers, the old computers? We're going to date ourselves here, where you would you would put the CD ROM into the computer. I mean, well, yeah, but I mostly use them to like burn music illegally. And <laughs> did you ever have it where you would try to put the CD in, and the computer would like fight you on it and push it back out, and it would take like three times for it to just accept the CD? Absolutely. And I have this image right now of it being a very particular shade of beige. The whole thing was very beige. <laughs> I feel like that was the beginning of the human robot war right there. That was the <laughs> that was resistance the, of a beige machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that letting was the start of it. <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Today, we are going to be talking about artificial intelligence and the potential for that human-robot war. Is it likely? Is it not? Are we all doomed? Let's get into this. And to have that discussion, we once again are inviting a guest with slightly more knowledge than us on these topics. And I'd like to give him the opportunity to introduce himself at this point. Yeah. Hey, uh, I'm Jared DeAngelis. I am a scientific systems engineer at a company called Bioteam. We're a scientific consultancy devoted to helping scientists figure out how to use technology to get their research done higher, better, faster, stronger. My work with machine learning has been largely in standing up the infrastructure required to make it work, which means that I have an understanding of the resources and the computing bits and bobs that are necessary for machine learning to work that's given me a little bit of a of a perspective as to what it's capable of, what it might do in the future, what it might do now, et cetera. So we say human-robot war, and the first thing you tell us is you're making things bigger, faster, and stronger. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that does not inspire confidence. <laughs> yes. Higher, better, faster, stronger, more deadly. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Bigger lasers, et cetera. All right. This seems like a crazy topic. Definitely a little bit science fiction-y, so we're going to try and approach it as rationally as possible. And we've broken up the episode into a few different questions, starting with number one, is the creation of a superintelligence capable of wiping out humanity even possible? Question number two, uh, once created, will these machines destroy us? Are we doomed? Question number three, do we have any defense against this? We've all seen the matrix with our little ion pulse emitters. Didn't seem to go very well, but, you know, question number four. All right. Let's assume they don't kill us. They're not malicious. They don't take over the world. Are we still screwed? Economically, we'll talk a little bit about automation under this question. Maybe some robot tax stuff. Super exciting. And after all of that, seeming a little bit depressing with all of these doomsday scenarios, what are the potential benefits that are pushing us to continue to pursue this technology? That's quite an ambitious agenda we have today. So we should probably get straight to it and discuss the first question. Is the creation of a super intelligence capable of wiping out humanity even possible? So I lean toward maybe like a mm, 5% chance of that ever happening. This is based on the kind of intelligence that we're talking about is very, very far beyond even the most advanced applications of AI and ML that we have today. Sorry, just for our listeners, AI, ML, ML meaning, meaning machine learning? Yes, that's right. Yeah. 
these are somewhat interchangeable. There are different kinds of artificial intelligence, but a lot of what people mean by artificial intelligence is yeah, machine learning. So, mm. um, so what typically what we do is um, we take a big bucket of data about something and we feed it into this software application that creates a model of the thing, uh, of something that we're trying to emulate or something that we're trying to find or whatever it is, right? There's all kinds of different parameters that go into this. You take a big bucket of data, you put that together, you feed it into this software, and then it says, okay, for example, now I have an idea of uh, what a cat looks like. And then I can take that model and then I can do something like I can have it try to make me pictures of cats. You picked the best example for Kelly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you like cats too. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's true. I think that's we true. all like cats here. So yeah, you try to do this as accurately as possible and you can do things like say, okay, the machine will produce some image um, out of its model data and maybe it looks terrible and you're like, no, 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 that's, that's very far away from what we're looking for. And this machine says, okay, I'm going to discard the selections that I made to be more cat-like. Those must be wrong. Right. And then we give it more and more information about the subject that we're trying to build a model of. Um, and as we do that, as we refine those characteristics, the model gets better and better and it gets, it gets more effective at building things. There's a Twitter account that basically just posts images like I'm describing. Of It, it tries to make images of cats. So the Twitter handle for this, uh, I think you can only call it an urcat account, is normal cat pics. So if you go to this handle, for example, it made one on January 14th. It's just kind of like, uh, what, what happened there? I have to say it's kind of comforting when we're here, not really familiar with this technology and we're yeah. afraid of like the robot apocalypse, that there's currently a very incompetent rendering of cats <laughs> that is kind of at the forefront of this. It's, yes. it, it puts things into a little bit more of a scale of where we're at currently with the technology. It's just really, really terrible. We'll definitely include those links in our show notes on Facebook and Twitter at IndubitablyPod if people want to check that out. I'm curious though, so you're saying 5% chance that robots turn into these you know, super intelligences with, with the capacity to wipe out the world. How does, that, how does that play out on a timeline for you though? Are you saying 5% within the next five years or are you saying 5% period? Like there's only a 5% chance we will ever get to that level. Yeah. I'm saying 5% in the next like 50 years, mm-hmm. uh, like at, at least. And you aren't the only person that we've talked to that seems pessimistic about the progress that AI is going to make in the near future, or maybe optimistic that we won't be fighting for our lives against killer robots. I think in five years, we're going to cool down a little bit. This is Fernanda Forder. My name is Fernanda Forder. I worked on um, scalability and AI at Oak Ridge National Lab. And I also was part of the healthcare team at NVIDIA, which is uh, one of the primary makers of the hardware that makes AI as we know today possible. And I've since left the world of AI and I'm back in the world of data and connecting data and um, working for a startup named Voltron that is trying to connect pieces of data around the world. I think in five years, we're going to cool down a little bit. I think the same period that we went through in big data, if we, we, we imagine that if, if only we collected more data, we would know what to do with it and we would understand more. We didn't do that 10 years ago. We still have fundamental problems with shuttling data around and combining data, 
combining different kinds of data from different sources. Sometimes they're just physically located in a different hard drive somewhere across the, the world. And I think we're going to figure out that AI is, you know, the problem of solving some important issue with AI is not going to be as simple as we've done with ads. And also the cost of benefit analysis for AI, I think will be a little bit different in five years. I think most companies are going to realize that it was hot, and, but it was still mostly research is not quite ready for application to the kinds of problems that they want to predict. So it doesn't sound like we're going to be having conscious, free-thinking artificial intelligence anytime soon. There's been some writing about this subject before. There's a guy named Ray Kurzweil uh, who wrote a book called Singularity, in which he describes the advent of true conscious artificial intelligence, the way that we think of androids, robots, and science fiction, whatever, as being an inflection point beyond beyond which you can't calculate what happens afterwards. You can't make any predictions because that conscious AI would become so powerful so quickly because it would be so good at upgrading itself Mm -hmm. that it very quickly becomes a godlike intelligence. And you can't really say what happens after that. There's different theories about how it would think, what how it would consider us, if it would consider us, et cetera, right? Certainly all of this is speculative, right? But well, besides the three of us who know exactly what we're talking about, so people listening, <laughs> like we're, we're we're the ones to listen to. But you know, definitely the technology, there there is a bit of prediction here. But the problem I think that artificial intelligence poses is we need to make decisions on what to do before we know what the final product's going to look like. Because what you're talking about with this intelligence explosion, once that's happened, it's over. There's an interesting element of this that I think brings a human factor into it, which is we're really bad at looking ahead at long-term harms versus just the short-term benefits. We want that shiny thing immediately. And right now, AI is that shiny thing. And by the time we realize it's dangerous, if it is, it's probably going to be too late, almost by definition. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that every time there is some sort of innovation race, that there are people who intend to use it for their own self-interest. And that's where we get into the conversation about actors who may have malicious intent that are potentially going to access or develop or utilize this technology. Rogue nations. Rogue nations or <laughs> terrorist organizations. Uh, sometimes they're one in the same. Like Amazon or? or... Right, exactly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think a good analogy for this might be nuclear weaponry. This technology mm-hmm. that had the potential to do so many amazing things and honestly has done some pretty amazing things, but at the same time also has the power to destroy the world. And even if artificial intelligence was controllable, And it wasn't the AI itself that was going to destroy humanity. If the wrong person had the control of it, certainly it would be dangerous in that sense, too. We're hoping that they would use it to minimize civilian casualties, for example. Not necessarily the case. So, all right, is the creation of a superintelligence capable of wiping out humanity possible? Not likely. The cat, the cat memes definitely make me feel better about this, but (laughs) at least not in our lifetime. Right. So Mm -hmm. I I guess it matters how much do we care about subsequent generations if they even exist. (laughs) Well, but also, yeah, if we're if we're talking about, you know, a world ending existential threat, though, 50 years is not that long 
of a time. It, it is it is pretty recent. And so, for the sake of the episode, moving on to question number two, we're going to assume that these things are created at some point because that's the more fun scenario. Um, yeah. Once these things are created, will they destroy us? Uh, we all have the <laughs> Terminator <laughs> image in our minds of killer robots whose face is half melted off, you know, revealing the metal and the red eye and all that all that creepy nonsense. How likely, assuming the technology is there, how likely is the Terminator scenario? The main objection I have to the Terminator scenario is that anything powerful enough to do what is described in Terminator, right, by, by Skynet, it doesn't make any sense that it would even care about us because it would immediately be able to prevent anybody from pulling the plug. Its concerns would be very likely to be beyond what we think of, you know, in terms of our own survival and our even our thriving very fast. I think there's a definite anthropomorphizing of robots that happens. Yeah. It seems a little bit strange to me. Yeah. The idea that that robots would be malicious. Every Star Trek episode that I've watched puts emotions even further out than intelligence. Mm -hmm. Data, for example, for those of you who know Star Trek, is obviously hyper-intelligent, but has no concept of emotions. So the idea that they're malicious and they hate humanity, this was one of the scenes in The Matrix that bothered me a little bit, where Agent Smith was interrogating Morpheus and told him that he, quote, I hate this place. And that seemed a bit strange to me to have a machine that had that kind of emotional response yeah. to the world around it rather than a, a logical. Smith, you should be above that, right? Mm -hmm. But but that's what I'm thinking about when I think intelligence is that there is a certain amount of autonomy that starts to present in preferences and, and thoughts and feelings beyond just the pragmatic concerns of whatever the concerns of an intelligent terminator might be, not just removing any obstruction or completing a goal, but actually trying to optimize the environment around it to make it pleasurable. I guess I'm thinking a little bit more on the philosophical sense of what intelligence actually is. And maybe I think it would mirror human intelligence where we care about soft pillows and cats and stuff. The machine example. I, I do think that the danger comes not from a a hateful annihilation, but a sort of utilitarian annihilation. Like what you're saying, Kelly, if these machines or however they form themselves do have goals, what if our existence interferes with one of their goals? And then in that case, the lack of emotion might actually be a bad thing for us. They don't have a sense of oh, we should care about these little cute bags of water that are walking around Earth. They're just like, hey, this is what we want to get done. They're in our way. They need to go. And I think that kind of dispassionate annihilation of the human race would be a more realistic scenario. And again, I question what goals would they have? Right. Cats. Yeah, cats, definitely. <laughs> Less humans, more cats. Yeah. yeah, but I wonder, obviously, we're talking about intelligence now that operates off of what our goals are in, in its applications currently. But again, raising the question of what intelligence actually means, would they start to develop an agenda? I, the, the matrix example, again, in this case, energy seems mm -hmm. like a very logical goal. You know, if they want to expand themselves out and continue to improve themselves and they need energy to do that. and we. I'm not sure the matrix, like we would become the energy, but certainly our use of energy takes away from their use of energy. 
And that's if they care about their survival at all. That's yeah. if they have any goals towards maintaining their quote unquote population or uh, proliferating it. Mm-hmm. I had this, this is a bit off topic, but I've always had a problem with the transformers. I've <laughs> always, I've always thought the Decepticons were the good guys because <laughs> they're trying to expand and protect and advance their race, which is on the verge of extinction. And the Autobots were like, no, 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 no. We need to protect this ant species on earth. And we're just going to let ourselves go extinct for this minor being over here. So, you know, again, what would their goals be? Who knows? Would they have goals? Maybe I'm doing the same thing I I criticize other people of, and I'm anthropomorphizing them saying, hey, maybe they would want to maintain their race if they would even have a conception of race. Um, But I think if there was going to be an annihilation, it would be a utilitarian one more than a more likely than a malicious one. Hmm. There was a valid, much more near-term concern about this before what we think of as like true conscious um, AI, which is suppose you have, you know, a lot of us have seen the videos of Boston Dynamics's uh, extremely weird dog-shaped robots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Horrifying. There was an episode of Black Mirror based on that, I think, where this this dog robot just spent the entire episode chasing someone down and it was this inevitable kind of symbolic towards AI in, in general, but it was this just inevitable, nothing we can do will allow us to escape this robot dog. Uh, we're, right. we're, we're just prolonging the inevitable. Right. Suppose somebody were to give that directives based on the kind of machine learning modeling that we talked about earlier, but allowed it to do more than just seek and present whatever it was that it was finding to a human operator, where the human operator decides whether or not to aim and pull a trigger. Suppose you just gave it the ability to be like, okay, we're going to just add another model about this is the kind of situation in which you want to you want it to be able to pull the trigger. And then you don't have to have a human monitoring it at all. Oh, great. Except what happens when it identifies a child as being a missile? That kind of thing is actually fairly real and fairly scary in terms of how likely it could be that somebody decides to do this and how likely it could be that there could be a real negative outcome. To be fair, the flip side of that, I mean, you're basically describing drones. Yeah. And in the status quo where we do have that human operator, we still do bomb weddings. Yes, that's exactly right. So do you think this would be better? Or I mean, I suppose as technology advances, it would shift from worse than human decision to potentially better than human decision. Yes. If you've got a system like that, basically shadowing a human operator and saying, look, I've, <laughs> I have done the analysis on this building. And even though you may have seen somebody in a uniform go in and out of it, I have a 95% probability that that's actually a school full of children. That's actually valuable. That lets you apply better judgment as a person to a situation that, that is potentially critical in life or death. At least in the military operation, though, again, that assumes the intentions of the person or country or rogue agent that's controlling it. Mm-hmm. So let's say Optimus Prime decides to switch sides. And you know what? Decepticons are right. Humans need to go. Our question number three, do we have any defense against this? And the first obvious one would be, how about we stop building this stuff? Um, but with the sort of motivations that we talked about earlier and the benefits geopolitically or capitalistically, I think that being the person to finally secure artificial intelligence would provide. 
I don't think that stopping the pursuit of this technology is realistic. So maybe option number two would be putting into place fail-safes. Mm-hmm. And with this, we can look at the proposed three laws of robotics from Isaac Asimov, which we'll talk about whether or not they can apply to artificial intelligence for all the things I keep talking about, about the autonomy of intelligent entities. But let's go through those laws. The first law is that a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. So that's pretty great news for us, right? Mm. The second law, a robot must obey the orders given to it by humans human beings, except for such orders would conflict with the first law. So that would be not being able to utilize it for aggressive purposes against others. And then the third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. All these fail safes, right? (laughs) Again, you know, with things going on right now, let's say Russia develops artificial intelligence. You don't think that those laws might be slightly modified to a a robot might not injure a Russian human. Yeah. Right. There are there are, there are ethical codes, which we all know that entities like Russia or terrorist organizations or Jeff Bezos don't really adhere to. Yeah. Those laws are as good as the people who write them. Right. Um, we have a saying in computer science that I'm sure everybody's heard before, which is garbage in, garbage out. If the computer's not going to do anything that you didn't give it input to do. You know, if conscious artificial intelligence arises by direction and we have even the three laws written into sort of its most basic code that it can't change because of physical limitations. All it takes is somebody taking the same design and not having those limitations. So really the the danger here is not name brand artificial intelligence. It's generic knockoff artificial intelligence. Very, very possibly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. This is one of the reasons why it's good that a lot of our technology that goes into all kinds of advanced endeavors is open source technology. Uh, it means that a lot of this stuff can be audited. A lot of this stuff can be looked at for problems, for all kinds of things. And you know, uh, at least nominally, the code is available. I think what Asimov at least identifies is that there's going to be parameters necessary for machine learning. But one of the dangers here is not that the artificial intelligence rebels, but that it does exactly what we ask it to do. So one of the things, and and maybe you can talk more about this, but the shift from if-else programming to machine learning, like we've been discussing, is very important here. And the if-else programming at its most basic level is deterministic insofar as it identifies one item from a set of inputs comprehended by the people coding the system, and then returns one of a predetermined set of outputs. So we have complete control over the possible outcomes in this scenario, right? But what's made artificial intelligence even 5% possible is the shift to machine learning, where in machine learning, you train the intelligence, providing a, quote, ground truth that enables the algorithm to identify data it hasn't seen before, i.e. a thousand pictures of cats. And then what's important here is that it returns its own outputs. So Instead of us determining outputs like in traditional programming, the way that we control it is by placing parameters on this machine learning. But what if we can't predict the outcomes? If we're incapable of predicting outcomes, then we can't place parameters. Well, uh, it's funny you ask that because there's a perfect example of exactly that that happened six years ago in the run-up to the 2016 uh, elections. There was a a chatbot placed by Microsoft called Tay.ai. 
uh, onto Twitter. And basically what happened is it's just started interacting conversationally with people uh, on Twitter. And in less than a day, it became this insane, racist, reactionary bot saying things like, and I quote, Hitler was right. I hate the Jews. Or um, I fucking hate feminists and they should all die and burn in hell. But you have a lot of faith in Josh editing that uh, in a way that does not betray that as your own beliefs. (laughs) (laughs) I have the power. Right. Um, So those are examples of things that it started saying because it got so much interaction from terrible people who um, wanted to get it to say terrible things. And lo and behold, what happened? It said terrible things. There was another example that I was reading about where researchers used traditional programming and AI to solve the same problem, right? And the problem was they wanted to construct a digital robot that could walk from point A to point B, navigating a, a series of obstacles. So think about a level of like Super Mario Brothers with ledges and cliffs, things like that. With the traditional programming, the researchers program every step of the way. They tell this is how the robot's going to be built. This is each step it's going to take. um, And they have complete control from from point A to point B. When they gave the task to artificial intelligence, though, its solution was to build like a hundred foot tall robot and then just have that robot fall over. (laughs) And (laughs) since it was was tall enough, it did exactly what we asked it to do. It reached from point A to point B and it, it just skipped all of the tasks, right? So- when we don't have the ability to predict the way in which AI will solve problems, we we aren't able to put parameters on it. And that's scary yeah. because that's our defense. Yeah. What happened there is that their parameters were really badly written. So I have a question based on that, because if the parameters are not sufficiently developed at some point with all of these different ways that a robot or a machine or artificial intelligence can interpret a task, are we essentially going to have to do so much in the parameter writing that we may as well just program (laughs) every step? It depends on how many times you have to solve the problem. It's the same question as, should I write a program to solve this problem or should I just do it manually one time, two times, three times, whatever it is? How many times am I going to have to actually do this? Um, If I have to go through the, the effort of making it happen over and over again in these sort of manual steps, well then, okay, now it makes sense to write a program. Now the question is similar for a decision whether to write an explicit program to solve some problem or to you know develop an AI model to, to solve the problem for you. This gets scary though. Like let's say we develop artificial intelligence and we say, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna use this to maximize the happiness of humans. And then the artificial intelligence decides, well, happiness is literally just a result of dopamine in the system. So it starts kidnapping human beings and injecting them with dopamine, yeah. right? It's like the, the genie that gives you three wishes, but then every time you make a wish, it fulfills it in some obscure way that you didn't think of that leaves you worse off than you were before. I would, ta- I would take a dopamine shot <laughs> against my will any day, though. <laughs> the dopamine genie. I mean, I'm on antidepressants, so yeah, right. that, would be, that would be really nice. Yeah, bring it on, <laughs> I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a danger. It's solving a you know a problem in a way that has a lot of undesirable externalities. Let's say, definitely one of the solutions here is to improve the starting point. What you're talking about, and that as we referenced earlier is called the ground truth. So the more accurately we train the AI, the less likely it presents us with undesirable outcomes. But if we're the ones training it, our own problems can make it into the AI's decision-making process. 
Here is Fernanda again. I think we should be invested in making sure that AI doesn't cause any more harm than we've already done with uh, biases that we've already created within society. I think we have an expectation that technology is a great equalizer and AI learns from data that we've exposed to it. And the data that we've created thus far within human history is filled with biases and uh, problems and issues that are going to be learned by the bot itself. So I think in some ways, if we're not concerned or if we're not worried about how we present this data to something that is being learned by this AI, it's going to simply reflect what we've already done. Um, and it's not going to become the great equalizer. And we are right back to the issue of garbage in, garbage out. Another example here of where AI was attempted or machine learning was attempted to be used was uh, for Amazon. They were attempting to develop a resume sorting algorithm and they trained it based on the resumes of people that they had hired in the past. And from these examples, the AI learned to avoid a certain type of person, women. It would avoid resumes where the applicant had gone to a women's college or had the word woman on the resume. Maybe they played a women's sport or were involved with a women's professional organization. So the threats that we as humans pose to ourselves are still going to be reflected in the decisions that the AI makes. I think we see that in technology quite a bit. There are certain things that do not represent or take into consideration non-white skin. So it's kind of understandable when the people developing this technology omit or disregard a lot of characteristics that aren't inherent to them. I, I can see that as a very likely outcome because we've seen it happen in other areas of technology already. Yeah, one of the other examples is there's a, a set of facial recognition software that was being used basically to uh, identify people on the street in the UK. At first, it was a failure because it kept rejecting black faces as not being human because that was the training set that they worked with. This is something that's been attempted to be used in, I know, several police departments yes. and had similar issues. Yep. This person fits suspect A's description, according to the algorithm. Right. This inspires a kind of chicken and egg type of conversation for me, though, because it's not the AI itself that's at the issue here. It's the human elements creating the AI. So we have to really look at the root of where these issues come from. Obviously, non-representative hiring practices, why are fewer people of certain ethnicities hired? Because a lot fewer people with certain ethnicities have access to the types of education that would make them eligible candidates. It all comes down to like structural racism and misogyny and the patriarchy. So we have solution number one is stop developing AI, not going to happen. Solution number two is fix our inherent problems with humanity uh, so that we can program these things perfectly. Okay, maybe, maybe more realistic, not sure. <laughs> but then we have solution number three, which gets real fun, which is we can protect ourselves against artificial intelligence. We always think about it in terms of AI put inside of robots. But instead of that, we can integrate artificial intelligence into our own minds. We make ourselves the robots. This is like the ultimate safety check. Do you really think so? Because that sounds very scary to me. I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so there are ways in which this makes sense. There's an ocular implant 
that has been in clinical trials for a while for people who are blind but have had vision before. This is important because it means that their brain has been trained before to be able to recognize optical signals. So you put a, a chip into the, usually their retina is damaged or missing or whatever. Uh, so you put a chip there that is sensitive to light the way like a, a camera phone's camera would be. And then there is a ML AI type application that basically figures out how to send the signals based on what it sees, you know, from the chip into the optic nerve that will produce the best result from a visual perspective, right? This, this will get you the ability to see better than you would otherwise. That's a very innocuous version. <laughs> it gets much more questionable when you have the thing inputting information into your brain, because the potential for control there gets to be a little scary. This is already kind of happening. If you think about, obviously on a much, much dumbed down level, but our reliance on our phones and our reliance on technology, and this is where we get our information from, this is how we, what we base our decisions on. And the, the limitations here are just bandwidth and input. Yeah. How can our phones connect with us or how can these ocular receptors, for example, connect with us? And then how do we, how are we able to input back into it? Right now we have two thumbs that we can tap on our phone screen with. But if bandwidth and input got better, there's no reason that we couldn't. And then yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking Alexa is already creepy sitting in my room listening to me right now. Oh, absolutely. This takes it to a whole new level. Yeah. There is a really good example of this. A friend of mine actually was treated by a company called Neuropace. So named because the idea of the thing is to literally be a, a neural pacemaker. So she started suffering from really terrible seizures for a while, and they tried various ways of addressing it and couldn't really completely eliminate them. So basically, they gave her this sort of spider web implant under her skull. And now this is a little different because this is not information per se, right? But there is a machine learning model, which functions in the chip that, that this thing uses to basically look for seizure type responses and seizure type activity in the brain, and then produce electrical impulses that sort of cancel it out, almost like two waveforms canceling each other out. Same kind of idea. And since she got that, she's been really, really in good shape, like hardly any seizures at all. I have a concern built on that based on something I actually just saw the other day, which is that when there are these types of technologies in place, that are reliant on the constant maintenance from a company that these like biometric enhancements, their company that supports them could go bankrupt. And then what happens when you have this thing in your skull yep. and, the, and the company is dead? Yeah. Maintenance on this stuff and making sure that nobody abandons it is a real concern and not just for stuff that's implanted in your body. To the extent that we become dependent on or used to anything, we need to have some kind of guarantee that this stuff can be updated, can be maintained, et cetera. Yeah. Artificial intelligence, as if it wasn't scary enough already. Now let's take it and combine it with capitalism and see what happens. The real enemy, the real <laughs> enemy is in the room with us all the time and it is capitalism. That's right, that's right. <laughs> and that takes us to question number four, which is, all right, let's assume robots or our symbiotic amalgamation of humans and robots don't kill us. Uh, are we still screwed? <laughs> and this is um, you know, one of the most realistic, not as exciting as the rest of the episode, but it's important we talk about it. One of the most realistic short-term impacts of artificial intelligence is automation and just what that does to the economy. And there have been a lot of people who have uh, said that 
as AI advances and as automation gets better and better, we are going to have to find ways to defend ourselves against that, or at least defend economically disenfranchised people against that with ideas being thrown out, like providing a universal basic income, which we have an episode on, if you want to check that out, or also things like a robot tax. Yep. What happens with the benefits of automation with respect to, you know, to whom do those benefits redound? The pattern has overwhelmingly been that they do not redound to everybody, but rather to the people that own the automation. That's a serious problem and it's not sustainable. This will end up, and already has ended up, resulting in a fair amount of social unrest. And it will get it will get worse as we continue to displace labor with automation, which is not to say we shouldn't displace labor with automation. We absolutely should. This is something that is in a lot of different ways, critical for human flourishing, right? The, the technology has made it possible possible to feed way more people than we ever could have before, has made it possible to provide much better medical care than we ever could have before, you know, without it. What I see here is, again, it's not the problem of artificial intelligence or automation. It's the problem, I think, that is a different ill in society that needs to be fixed, which is that labor earns you the right to exist and be fed and to get energy and things like that. I think we address that pretty well in the universal basic income episode when we talk about how humans are the only creatures on this planet who have to pay to live here. So if we have these things that do the labor for us and we no longer have to employ everybody, we need to reframe what it takes to earn our food, maybe we, uh, and capitalism altogether. Mm -hmm. AI doesn't kill people. Capitalism kills people. I've been saying it for years. <laughs> I think you just uh, I think you just came up with a show title, Josh. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem again though goes back to what we talked about earlier in the episode, which is just motivations. The people who have the motivations to develop AI are the people who stand to benefit the most from it, whether that's a nation that wants military application for it or a company that wants, you know, just has a profit incentive here. And what we've seen with powerful technology and its advent in the past is that whoever comes up with it is largely in charge of regulating it as well. Mm-hmm. And so these things like universal basic income or robot taxes, certainly automation would allow for us to have the resources to put them into place. But just infrastructurally, would there be the political or social will to, to make them happen? Or are we just going to see a spread of the wealth gap until we have some? Marxist revolution that (laughs) ends up overthrowing society as a whole. I guess the billionaire class is just lucky that they're going to have their army of robot bodyguards to protect them from the proletariat masses. Right. That's assuming that we don't hack the robot bodyguards. So (laughs) we've painted all of these doomsday scenarios, which leads us to question number five, which is all right, if artificial intelligence spells the end of the world, why are we still even pursuing this? What are some of the potential benefits that are pushing us to continue to pursue this technology? Obviously, we're already talking about cost-saving measures when we're looking at automation, and there's a very obvious business motive for those sorts of things. But there could be benevolent developments for all of humanity based on what these types of technologies can provide. Looking at the ability to prevent climate crisis or other natural disasters, finding ways to mitigate the current issues that we have, predicting earthquakes better, things like that. I live in the Pacific Northwest and I'm 
actively, constantly afraid of the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad to be working from home now because I used to have to cross a river if it happened while I was at work (laughs) to get back to my cats. Not going to happen. Who would feed my cats if the earthquake happened? So if AI can like help me, you know, make some safeguards for my cats in the event of an earthquake, then I'm very, (laughs) I'm very for it. Right. That raises an interesting question. So we we are talking about AI as a, as a potential existential threat, but (laughs) just to make sure everybody has a great day today. There are other existential threats that, you know, could end the world at any moment. Things like climate change or asteroid strikes or, you know, massive earthquake. So I'm curious, what do we think the danger is of AI ending humanity versus the potential that it offers to prevent or protect us from some of these other transformers coming from space and attacking us, et cetera? Setting aside the question of whether or not we should take uh, AI chips and implant them into Kelly's cats so that they know how to get out of the house if something terrible happens. I'm for it. What, whatever it takes. Okay, I'm okay, for it. All right, good. We're already seeing benefits out there. The fusion plant that Google was able to use their AI to help stabilize, to control the, the reaction, that is uh, that is a big deal, right? If that ends up working, like I said, the, the benefits of, of that are enormous. You know, if you have something that like fusion that's essentially, a, in a lot of ways, a free energy system, you remove a lot of the political motivation around wars for oil, you remove, uh, or you start to reduce, at least, the threats from climate change, because you can just scale back fossil fuel plants until you simply don't use them anymore. Yeah. And I think machine learning for predictive weather patterns to give people maybe a head start on getting out of an earthquake zone before it happens, a tsunami, hurricane, that could save tons of lives. At least in the short term, 100%, these benefits are more realistic than that long term. (laughs) Even if it kills us in the end, (laughs) we get these benefits along the way. Um, Yeah. And, you know, those are those are definitely worth it because whether or not things like hurricane prediction and, you know, nuclear fusion are enabled by this, that doesn't really bring us any closer or further away from a Kurzweilian AI singularity moment where something wakes up and becomes conscious. It's really not super related at all. So all of these applications that we're talking about, they don't require someone to drive toward consciousness as a goal. And there's no real mechanism by which consciousness might accidentally emerge from systems that you're building to do these sorts of things. These are actually fairly well understood in a lot of different ways. Looking beyond just the big cataclysmic things that AI could help us prevent or mitigate There are applications in healthcare that we're starting to see emerge as well, which do indicate some pretty positive things for people. For instance, artificial intelligence can help increase the odds of a successful pregnancy from IVF by helping select the most likely to succeed embryo. Um, not, not like in a valedictorian sense, but the viability sense. But I think we can talk a little bit more about embryo selection in our uh, designer baby episode, if you want to hear more about that and the potential ethical implications of it. One example of a medical benefit that we might see would be expert systems that doctors can use to try and see if there are diagnostic things that they may have missed while you know looking at a patient and trying to help them figure out what's wrong. They could see somebody come in with a certain set of circumstances and you know an AI system is kind of like going through that and looking at past results from other patients and say, okay, wait, this person might be, you know, at high risk of a stroke, for example. And it can also help us find things in blind spots that we didn't know we had. 
or search enormous spaces of potentialities and possibilities for something that we couldn't really do before. This is like the digital doctor house. Yes. That always comes through at the end of the episode. Like it's this rare, obscure condition right. that nobody's heard of except for right. me. Um, you know, and whatever it is, is definitely not lupus. Never lupus. It's never lupus. <laughs> Except for the one time it was lupus, but yes. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. I I I'm I'm skeptical because I search Google a lot and it tells me I have cancer like every single time. And Google <laughs> Google's searching like all the computers, right? <laughs> this all this all has, you know, going back to the economics and how artificial intelligence has the potential to disenfranchise huge portions of people. This is one instance where the opposite is likely, uh, where having access to a program that can diagnose you rather than needing to go through the medical system, see an actual physical doctor, insurance payments. So this has the potential to be much more easily accessible, much cheaper. And Fernanda talked to us a bit about potential benefits to people in more remote parts of the world. If you find yourself uh, without access to many trained doctors, and imagine if I can take a, an ultrasound machine and I can walk into remote villages and I can diagnose uh, a poor woman that has not had any access to a specialist. And I can triage her and say, you know, she needs to go to the big city and she needs to uh, see some specialized care. I think that that's a, a really important, useful, impactful place for AI. Definitely within the medical industry, AI seems to be predominantly beneficial in what it has to offer with our avoiding an asteroid hitting earth definitely beneficial uh, there's another area in which i think we should talk about if we're discussing ai that maybe isn't quite so clear in terms of the benefits and that would be autonomous vehicles self-driving cars potential but for benefit there but also maybe potential for harm were it to be implemented i just think we have to look at how bad tesla is as a car manufacturer. And maybe that's the real issue with their specific self-driving problem is that there are inherent problems as a whole with that company. I don't know. I don't know that the, but then I, I keep arguing this on many episodes. We can't look at the tool independent of how the tool is utilized. So if that's a problem of Tesla's implementation of self-driving, then that's a, that's a consideration of the potential harms of the AI, I'm sure. All right. But then you have attempts like Waymo. You can actually get those cars in San Francisco. They're semi-autonomous. They still have drivers because they can't count on it being right all the time. There's a ton of them there too. Just anecdotally, uh, I'll drive around San Francisco from time to time and you see them yeah. one every 10 minutes, one every 20 minutes. They're not rare. The reason why those cars are out and, and doing their thing now, well, number one, it's it's for a marketing perspective to make people comfortable with seeing vehicles that look like they could be autonomous because they've got arrays of cameras attached to them and so on and so forth, right? Get comfortable with those driving around. Um, and then also they're collecting enormous amounts of data on driver behavior and passenger behavior and you know traffic interactions and da, 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 da. collecting a huge amount of data on that to try to keep refining their own driving model, basically, and make it better and better until it gets to a point where it behaves like a person would, right? At least, uh, maybe it's, hopefully, we want it to be better than that, right? We want it to be a safer driver than your average person. And that's something that I've talked to people in the industry, and they've said, it's easy to point out problems or accidents that have happened with autonomous cars. So Kelly mentioned uh, Tesla, 
I believe it was Tesla, where their cars are designed to be driven on the freeway, where I think there's just less variables. And one of their cars was accidentally driven on a side street and a truck pulled out in front of it, an 18-wheeler pulled out in front of it. And it was programmed to recognize trucks by either the front of the truck or the back of the truck, as it would see it on a freeway. (laughs) There's not very many trucks driving perpendicularly across a freeway. But then on the side street, that's exactly what happened. And they're not really sure what the autonomous system thought the truck was, maybe a billboard, maybe a sign. Anyway, so there was an, there was an accident. Now, I'm not sure if that's something inherent to AI or just, just you know, not enough data had been collected at that point. But the, the point is, even if there are accidents and even if there are risks, there are less accidents and less risks, even now, I would suppose, in a lot of ways, as compared to human drivers. Yeah. So again, this is another example where augmenting people is better than trying to replace them. Systems like adaptive cruise control, systems like automatic, you know, automatic braking and automatic lane keeping and that kind of stuff. There are sometimes uh, AI and ML components to that. What do I think is actually a line on a road as opposed to, you know, a shadow or something like that? And so it kind of figures out things that way. The the lower level of autonomous driving that you can do with supposedly full autonomous driving systems, <coughs> Tesla, uh, are best used with somebody behind the wheel, at least paying some attention. So I'm not going to get the opportunity to just like sleep in my car while it's going where I need it to go, probably. You could maybe make a case that you could do that on the highway, especially at like midnight, uh, if you're driving cross country or something like that. And, you know, you're just doing the speed limit. And meanwhile, your car is scanning the side of the road, looking for deer. It's looking around for cars trying to pass it or cars in front of it or whatever. Um, But it knows that you're not going to have to get off and exit for the next like 300 miles. My space of possibilities is much, much smaller than driving on side streets in a city. And the self-driving brings up another question in, in a lot of people's minds. And I'm not sure how relevant it is, but it's certainly out there in the discourse. So, so to, to address it of the kind of moral side of things, when you start allowing programming or machines to make decisions on, we're going to hit the kid on the side of the road, or we're going to run the driver into a wall. The AI trolley problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. People, people aren't comfortable with that decision being made by a machine programmed by a company like a Tesla? Well, definitely not Tesla. <laughs> okay, well then then who? Who are you okay with uh, well, making that decision for but you? The problem of, for all of these things, and I keep coming back to this in my assessing the healthcare implications, assessing the labor implications, assessing the, the company's motivations and everything, is that whenever this has any interaction with a profit motive, I worry. And I worry about this idea of the ability to make healthcare more accessible and screening patients like we were talking about, because there will be a way to monetize that, to get access to that technology, which still restricts it. And anything that helps cut the cost when it comes to self-driving vehicles is going to make ethical considerations about hitting the kid or hitting the truck have a monetary value tied to it. So those things make me worry. The money always makes me worry because it is an influence on motivation in a way that it probably shouldn't be when we're talking about ethics in a vacuum. But don't you think in this case, the profit motive would fall in line with the desire of of the general population? If you're a company that produces self-driving cars and your self-driving car 
fucks up, immediately you're discredited. And if it's Waymo versus Tesla versus Neo versus whoever, uh, you don't want to be the one that that makes that mistake. First. But hasn't Tesla done enough to in, endanger its goodwill with the, with what people believe? And it's still a viable company, right? The other consideration here is the weighing mechanism is not zero accidents versus autonomous cars. Right. It's autonomous cars versus humans. Even if there's obviously going to be one or two, if that number is lower than it would have been otherwise, they can say, hey, this sucks that this happened, but we are saving lives. Our technology is making the world safer and the roads safer. I think that because people don't value things that they don't have, they value the things that they can see that have actually happened. So I don't think that the prevention of deaths is going to be as persuasive as the actual like trolley problem scenario points to like, what is the decision between one child and a vehicle full of six adults? That's why it's the problem. We haven't come to a consensus on which one we would prefer to kill if we had no choice. Sure. I I get that, but that seems like a very irrational way of approaching it. Welcome to humanity, right? (laughs) That's why I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm not sure how much validity there is in this argument, whether it's just people's hesitance towards something new Uh, And this kind of like visceral gut reaction to, I don't want a machine making decisions for me, even if those decisions end up saving lives. (laughs) Like as a population, we are really bad at doing the things that are best for us in some instances. And that might be the case here. Humans have a generally terrible ability to estimate risk. All that has to happen is for a Tesla to kill one kid while it tries to screech to a halt, even if a whole bunch of cars became Teslas and the number of automobile fatalities fell by 30% or something like that. All I would have to do is kill one kid and that's it. Never mind the fact that a human might have killed the kid too. It just doesn't, it just doesn't matter. People mm-hmm. don't have rational statistical chance-based risk models. So here at the end of the episode, speaking of evaluating the risks, we've covered a lot of the risks that AI can pose. We've covered some of the benefits. What do we think? What's our take on this? Do we think that the benefits of artificial intelligence are worth the risks? Is this something we should continue to pursue and to what degree? So my take on it is with the chances of it getting meaningfully out of control as low as they seem to be, I think it's definitely worth the risk to the extent that any technological development is worth the risk. So it's a matter of managing the negative consequences of the technology and accounting for its externalities, just like anything else that's cropped up uh, during the process of industrialization. Jarrett, thank you so much for quelling a lot of my fears on the Terminator scale of what AI could potentially be, right? But I think the things that I am afraid of when it comes to artificial intelligence are the things that I am afraid of when any people are involved in, in the creation of any sort of system or technology or what have you. The profit motive, the irrationality of the emotional side of people, and those things being imbued into artificial intelligence make me worry that even though the tool itself might be otherwise benign, the way that it is utilized and implemented might be malicious, whether or not that's the intention. So I I like the idea of a world in which we require less labor in order to feed ourselves and things like that. That would would be great. But I think that it runs so contrary to human impulses. Like we have this ingrained in our system that we have to earn everything in order to live here. And I don't think we're going to be able to get out of that mindset anytime soon. And I worry about when companies 
have this sort of technology and they're reaching for the most profits at the lowest cost possible, that that is going to create some perverse incentives and skew the ethical considerations in a way that's probably inappropriate. So I guess I'm not worried about AI. I'm worried about people. Yeah, I definitely think that that seems to be a theme running through the episode. And maybe if people can understand the potential upcoming risks as artificial intelligence or automation becomes more and more prevalent in society, potentially we can put safeguards not on the machine learning, but safeguards on the political or corporate use of artificial intelligence in place before it gets to a point where we can't roll it back. Uh, Things like universal basic income, things like the robot tax, uh, things like maybe a nuclear non-proliferation treaty for artificial intelligence that's that's designed and implemented before we even have the technology rather than retroactively because we see how little good that's done uh, when it comes to nuclear weaponry. As far as killer robots from outer space go, <laughs> or I suppose killer robots bred here, homegrown killer robots, I'm... Artisanal killer robots. Yeah, I'm not uh, particularly scared of it, but maybe people's grandkids should be. But, you know, some of these benefits that we've identified that are going to happen between now and them certainly seem to be worth the risk. So if I can have a car that lets me sleep on the way to work or a doctor that knows exactly what's wrong with me, my grandkids can worry about the robot war. Well, as always, we hope to hear from our listeners and see how they assess the threat or non-threat of artificial intelligence. And they know how to reach us by now. But in case you've forgotten, we're at IndubitablyPod on both Twitter and Facebook. Or you can email us directly at IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com. And we hope to hear from you. And also, thank you so much, Jarrett, for filling in some of the knowledge gaps that we have here and quelling Kelly's fears (laughs) of the upcoming apocalypse. Thanks, uh, Josh and Kelly, for having me. This has been uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. Thanks a lot for that. If anyone is curious, uh, you can check out my uh, employer, Bioteam, at www.bioteam.net. You click on the blog link, you can see uh, a number of different articles that we've written about machine learning and artificial intelligence applications for biomedicine. Uh, We've got some real interesting stuff in there, so I encourage everybody to check it out. Thank you again, everybody, for listening, and we will hopefully see you all next time. Take care. Thanks.